Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Megan Noe, Marketing Manager of Experimental Sound Studio. How are you today? I'm doing good. For those worried, Kat is in lap. Cat is like deeply embedded in laps. Have we talked so about fluffy. the? Th- so I do. I don't know if people know about the throne. Oh yeah, the throne is currently out of commission. Well, it's gonna get fixed. I was talking to, to Meg before you got here, Mo, about it, and I'm pretty sure I'm just gonna like. Meg had a really good idea that was like actually legitimate, but my thinking is I'm just gonna stick a bunch of screws in it, like, and and that's gonna gonna keep yeah. making not break. But then she was like, "What about wood, wood glue?" glue? Exactly. Use both. Yeah. Double enforce it. Exactly. I was thinking wood glue because we, because we flipped it over and like a peg is just out of place. Yeah. Mm. I just want to, so, cause that's happened before where we've had a guest sit down and then, and then it creaks and you're like, is this the time it's going down? And so I want to never feel like that. I want to always just feel like that chair. Well, because it's a laundry room chair. Yeah. It is a room that was taken from a... It is a chair that was che- taken from a laundry room. So, I and mean... like, a lot of our chairs in our, in our apartment are those kinds of chairs. Or, like, hallway chairs. Right. Like, I'm sitting in a hallway chair. Yeah. When people move out, they leave chairs in yeah. the apartment building. Anyway. Anyway. Thank you so much for being <laughs> yeah. here. Um, gotta have a little bit of bullshit at top, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, so we're really excited to have you. We really love Experimental Sound Studio um, and a lot of the collaborations that y'all work with. Um, but would you mind introducing our audience to to Experimental Sound Studio? Sure. What it is, what it's about? <clears throat> yeah. Experimental Sound Studio um, was founded in 1986 by um, Lou Malazzi and Don Malazzi um, <clears throat> and a number of other cast and characters who were um, a part of the sound scene in the <laughs> late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been sort of established as a sound recording studio. It was initially a recording studio. It was the impetus of the project, but it was aimed at preserving and archiving and supporting artist projects um, and continues to do that. So we've been around in our eagle... Ugh, I almost said Eaglewood. <laughs> West Edgewater um, neighborhood since 2006. Um, and our programs are quite wide. We have three different residency programs. Um, one's called Wavefront, which is in collaboration with a nonprofit in Hong Kong called Sound Pocket. So we do like an exchange program with artists. Um, we have one called um, Outer Ear Residency that um, it essentially just supports artist projects throughout a year-long term where they develop work and then typically record and present it in some kind of concert. Um, We have, we just started a new residency called the Alba Residency, which is in partnership with the School of the Art Institute, where one of their graduates is selected to use our sort of full potential for the summer following their graduation. Um, So we have Katie Wood in the studio now. We have a lot going on, so it's kind of hard to like organize how all of this comes together, but um, we do public presentations and exhibitions. Um, we have a gallery in our space called Audible Gallery, which is a rotating exhibition space. We typically do three to four exhibitions a year. Um, 
<clears throat> we have an ongoing commissioning series at the Lincoln Park Conservatory called Florisonic that also has three about three or four projects a year. That's also the longest standing um, sound commissioning program in the United States. It's been going since 2000. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Um, we have the Creative Audio Archives, which is a giant archive of recordings that span the last 60 years that we keep as a treasure trove to preserve, and um, it's totally accessible to the public to come and research. Um, uh, most notable collection is the Sun Ra'el Saturn Archive, um, which contains a lot of documents that haven't even really been studied. Um, so yeah. I'm like, there's a lot. There's yeah, <laughs> and I want to I want to take a step back for right. context, and this might right. be like a really dumb question to some listeners, but I, I want to ask it anyway for for folks. Um, when you say what what does it mean to you when you say recording sound? You know, because I think that when people hear studio, they get one idea, and I want to I want to kind of like contextualize what it, the kind of work that you're doing. Well, I mean. It really is as broad as it sounds. We record sounds, you know, <laughs> like um, because we work with everyone from podcasters to filmmakers to um, sound artists to, uh, you know, more contemporary classical music. Um, basically, the, the main word in what we do and everything we do is experimentation. So... Um, you know, we really make a lot of different sounds and we record a lot of different sounds for different purposes. And I think that's sort of what makes us unique in that um, <clears throat> we really do take up the full range of uh, <laughs> of sonic art, like anything you hear with a sound we, we work with. So I, I've, you know, been hearing about Experimental Sound Studio since I moved here. I came here in 2015. I had no idea it's been around for... 33 years mm -hmm. like that's amazing do you, so it was it was started with the intention of being a recording studio was the mission of accessibility part of it from the get or was it just like like oh like let's let's do like experiment like let's have a, a, a space where people can can record experimental music and sounds and stuff well yeah both it was definitely from the get-go and i wish I could recall a poster that we've been going through the archive recently for our gala that's coming up. And we found all of these documents like flyers about our recording studio and our workshops. And every time we post them or share with people, they're like, wow, that's incredibly cheap. You know, like <laughs> that is such a great deal. And we still have really great deals because we want it to be accessible. We want artists to be able to make their work and present their work and be able to continue to archive their work. Those things are pretty pivotal for people who make, who have durational practices and um, ephemeral practices. No, absolutely. Like I can't, like the, I have, we've, we've talked to some people who are like, you know, who make music in more like of the pop realm and just like the rigmarole that they have to go through to get their stuff recorded is like, the one for me, and this is kind of a, someone recently told me that they went on a podcast and they had to pay to be on the podcast. And I was like, that's, that's wild to me. Like, what, what is that? Like, I, it can be so predatory. And, and even when it's not predatory, it's still 
weird. Like I remember for a while I was working as a freelance recording engineer. I feel like people know this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember it was like fresh out of grad school. I was an opera singer. And so there of course were like other people that did that. And I remember because I was always the cheapest person. And so many times people are like, Oh, like how could you do this? Like it's, it's, uh, it's whatever. And I, and I think that that mindset... Well, the point is other recording engineers would approach you and say, your rates are too cheap. Like, you're making it so that I can't charge what I charge. And it's like, no, I'm just... Like, I'm just charging what I think is right to charge. Well, it's an, inter- it's an interesting thing, right? Because, like, I think that... Because it's not... It, def- it certainly doesn't come from... The mindset of like I'm trying to have a pro like it's a, it's not thinking about it like a market it's thinking about it like how that idea of archival that idea of of recognizing where artists are at you know I think that it's um it's an interesting time that we find ourselves in where so many folks that are creatives are also like working class creatives. And as such, have the budget of that, you know, Mm. Um, how much has that, that kind of consideration of the like societal level of, of things been the balance to where that affordability comes into play? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we consider all of it. You know, Mm -hmm. we're all, it was founded by working artists, you know, all working artists continue to develop the organization, all of the co-founders are artists in their own right. So I think we all know what it what the experience of trying to make a living off of your practice is like and trying to um, be understanding of what the value of your work might be. So, you know, like we have incredible engineers and our facilities are, you know, wonderful. Um, So we keep our rates at a price that is reasonable for our engineers and for people to come and and make a record or uh, mix their film or what have you. Um, But I think, yeah, we, we take that into deep consideration, which is also part of the reason why, you know, we have these long programs and residencies is that, you know, a lot of that is in trade for just using our space. So mm-hmm. um, not only does it require money to, like, make a record, um, it requires money and time to be able to, you know, sit down and make space to to produce the work, you know. So I think um, another vital aspect to what we do that we consider as a part of this recording studio or the studio's sort of mission overall is that, like, giving artists support however they need it to pr- produce their work beyond just making it at an affordable rate is just acknowledging that the artistic life, the artistic endeavor, like needs more support to continue to grow. I, I love that. Well, and I, I want to touch more on that because obviously, you know, with what we talked about at the start, um, so much of what y'all are doing is not just what happens in the recording room at the at the time of recording like so much of it is residency and commission work and stuff like that like what how you said that already since 2000 did you say since 2000 that you've been doing the commissioning well so we've had that's a specific program called Mm -hmm. florasonic that's at the lincoln park conservatory that's since 2006 Mm. 
Um, and that's, that's a, so cool. Yeah. Sorry, that just kind of clicked. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Oh yeah. It's awesome. We, um, we just had an artist in town who did a performance at the Lincoln Park Conservatory, like a gong bath. It was like really lovely experience, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, commissioning is really, a you know, with everything that we do, we're trying to get artists to make new work, to take risks and to try to pay them for what they do. So you know, a number of our concerts, we make sure to give artists a reasonable fee. We try not to like, there's no like weird deals behind the door. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, we try to do what, whatever we can to have a sufficient budget to make things work and to help preserve what the artists do. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it's, it's really interesting <laughs> because I, I, a lot of times I think about when you are an entity um, with decision-making like that, like there's a, some entities do like a balancing act kind of thing with this kind of work where, um, they're like, oh, well, I, I don't know. As a, as a person that appreciates when an entity is very experimental and, and kind of pushes in one direction, I don't always know what the balancing act of against that is. Um, the actual question, question I was going to ask you first was like, what do you have that? About, like what um how <laughs> I don't have an actual question I'm sorry like I'm I it's hard to think about what I'm trying to like I think that when you put the emphasis on experimentation it's it's um I have a I have a thought off of this. Sure. If you want to if you want to let this marinate, I think a lot of artists are afraid of experimentation, especially in I not inherently art. I, I'm I'm not gonna be like, you know, quote artists are afraid of experimentation. Unquote, you know, source Maureen Smith. Like no, but like I think that when it comes to taking risks as far as like what they're investing money in. I think it's harder for artists to invest money in something that they're like, oh, this is risky. Like in personal practice, I think it's easier to take to take risks. But it, when it comes to like, oh, I'm going to record my album now and I'm going to crowdsource or I'm going to take out a loan or I'm going to save up to do this thing and then to have it be experimental and like risky, mm -hmm. like... I think it's so important for there to be spaces where like, oh, like that crowdsource doesn't have to be as big or that crowd, you know, it's enabling artists to be able to take those risks and to be able to put out more innovative and more exciting work than just like, cool, I think that there's a better chance of this getting on the radio. So I'm going to record this at the fancy studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that's that's per like. The thing that is really interesting is when you have something at the forefront of an entity as as one directional, not that it's one directional, but that is so um, as experimentation that it can be so intensely risky. And as an entity, like it, a lot of times it feels like in certain entities when you bring up the idea of like maybe try something different, like there's so many reasons that can be provided not to do that. My mm -hmm. curious, my question, actual question is, um, what has, like, what keeps that at bay for y'all? Like what keeps, how do you keep 
it in the realm of trying new, trying different, staying experimental? That's a good question. I think we, you know, we've sort of developed a community over the years. And so um, to a certain degree, we've been going on for long enough that the experimentalists come to us, you know, (laughs) Um, and those that are willing to try new things and have ambitious projects want to work with us. So I think the, the risk taking is already inherent in some of these artists' practices. So it's not, it's not all like, you know, taking a, you know, more um, conventional music making person and saying like, you should make weirder music, but that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, like if we had more of those opportunities. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it's typically like, for example, we have um, our current Outer Ear residents are Luftwerk, this artist collective and um, a composer and musician, Catherine Young. And they're working on a project called White Wanderer, which sonifies glacial activity. Um, so they're working like with a glaciologist and Luftwerk, you know, is an incredible art collective that does predominantly installation work, whether that's productions or working with light, that's a big element to what they do, but sound is a large component as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like this work is somewhat risky in that they're pushing on boundaries or try- working to, um, achieve an aesthetic through investigating data, mm-hmm. um, something that might, is working to compel people to think about their environment. So some of that stuff I do see is like a different kind of risk taking mm-hmm. where you're really, um, you know, it's taken a number of grants. There's, you know, three arts funded their project. They've really already invested so much in this work that, um, yeah, I guess it could feel pretty risky to keep moving forward wondering what will happen. But I think also, you know, some of the like, some of the more emerging artists that we work with, like the idea of risk taking is really inherent in their performance right. and giving them an opportunity to have performances and to, to, to present their work in a new and different environment is also you know, more of the more basic level of, of risk taking that we sort of see, I guess, more regularly than these like bigger projects, right. which are both equally exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then on the other side of the dime, it's it's cool that y'all have fostered the environment where someone can come in and be like, yeah, like we're going to, you know, this is my project. We record glacial movement. And for their for the response to of uh, for for the response of the entity that is facilitating that to be that sounds awesome like let's make that happen instead <laughs> of like you're recording what like mm-hmm. okay cool like i think that it's cool that that there is that inherent community building mm-hmm. like it's you know experimental risk takers who come to this space that is welcoming of experimental risk takers. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to touch on too, I, a lot of the work that y'all do is in the, this presentational realm, I think is, which is really interesting of, of, of um, not just creating recordings, but creating like actual installations and things you can walk, like actual experiences. Like what, uh, <laughs> I just almost went, why? <laughs> but I guess, yeah, like what, how, what draw like why <laughs> why? <laughs> why present artists work 
uh, I don't know. That's what we do. Yeah. I don't know why. It's what we do. I think it's really, you know, with, with um, durational and time-based, like, ephemeral practices, this mm-hmm. is really what you have. Sound has, like, this sort of long history of how do you present this work to the public? How do you engage the public in what you do? And because that, you know, that presence, that... Um, that time that you give to the work is really how people experience sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like I understand, like, you know, we could just pump out records. We could just like, you know, like help people package a portfolio of work that they could submit to, um, I don't know, whatever they're, sure. <laughs> whatever they're seeking. Yeah. But, you know, I think like um, per- uh, uh, presence and performance can be a totally different experience from a, what you would hear on a record. There is like so, there's the potential for there to be so much more vulnerability and so much more, um, I don't know, creative energy. And not that that doesn't happen in the in the studio, but I think like live performance does something really different. And it also opens the door for us to work with artists who you know aren't necessarily like experimental musicians we present film we present performance art we present dance you know like all of this stuff is integral to how we see where sound play plays Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is experienced in the world so yeah i think it's just sort of like why is also just considering all of the different disciplines that we try to sort of foster yeah at the same time um Something I find really interesting is kind of like in in that same vein of like why do we present work? Well, because it's in, you know it's important that it's that it gets out there and like why not? Um, I find the archival aspect of what you all do I think is you know in that same vein of like preserving that legacy. I love that y'all are are about like legacy and like capturing moments and like what kind of stuff is in are in the archives yeah so we have i think like man i'm probably gonna screw this up like seven or eight collections cool. <laughs> they're all pretty large um the sunra orchestra and el saturn collection is like the largest that we have um but man, you know, the the CSS archive is basically everything, every program we've ever hosted publicly is documented and kept in this archive in, in that particular collection. So that's, you know, like video, that's, you know, every paper documents, that's audio, audio mm-hmm. recording, it's whatever we have that we sort of package, you know, it's, it's you know, documentation of our... Um, installations it's documentation of like our our um other public performances and engagements with our artists and residents so that thing just like continues to just grow at an exponential rate you know that one is pretty big for us Mm -hmm. um but you know like some of the older material from the ess archive includes like early radio programs that were produced by um john corbett and um Lou Malazzi, they did a program called Sounds from Chicago, which um, aired on WNUR and, um, God, I can't remember, WZRD. It's another, 
it's these are other like college based. Oh gosh, yeah. And I can't remember their call names, but um right into the show. Yeah. <laughs> Someone will <know>. Yeah. Uh <laughs> yeah, so Sounds from Chicago was like ra- a radio art program that ran from 89 to 91. Um and it, you know, is true Dadaist stuff too, you know, like lots of sound poetry. Some people came in and did like DJ mixes, but it was like still a very diverse aesthetic representation of what people at that time called called transmissions arts or radio art. So I think like um, we're also working on getting that collection package that we can present that on the radio as well. So that's like a new and exciting endeavor for us, starting with Sounds from Chicago, trying to relaunch and get us get the, the collection on the radio, get new commissions work on the radio. So yeah, it's like I could go on about the archive. It's it's <laughs> massive. We have so many gems in there. It's like, and anyone can come and interface with it. That's the thing that I think I'm really excited about in um, sort of helping to steer the organization is how do we get more people to come in and listen? How do we get more people to study what we have? Because, you know, there there is an academic environment that this information is so fertile for yeah um we started at a really particular time in sound art um and in sound the history of sound that i think um at that moment it became really clear that you know technologies change they change rather quickly this uh practice isn't always as um preserved and presented and made public like it it might be in the context of like a greater contemporary art world so I think, yeah, the archives are just the shit. Yeah. Well, I that's really fascinating to me because one of the questions I ask a lot, a lot, especially to folks, whenever we have someone that's like, they've been doing their project for two to three to four years or something like that, um, which happens frequently, um, I'll always be like, so what do you think your work would be like if it were... 10 years ago, you know, like if you were doing this in 20, 2009, like how would this be different? Um, and I, the reason for that question is because context is so important. Obvi- like that's, that's, there's a pretty obvious reason to that question. But what the reason why I bring it up now is because it's so interesting when you are on the level of it, of, of where you're looking at an archive of work and you're able to say, to see how context affects record like like something so um i don't know like of one moment you know mm-hmm. uh as a as a recording uh the recording of a performance mm-hmm. um is that something like like with the work of the archive and just kind of like experiencing through it and things like that like do you find yourself recognizing like trends in context or like things like that or or you know, is that something that's hard to, like, what are some themes that you've kind of noticed in the breadth of work in the, in the, in the archival work? It is massive. So one thing to know about the yeah. archive is that so we have so much of it um, that we, we haven't truly uncovered. So like there are endless documents that we're still, accessioning into the collection we have never heard we've never transcribed so these are just these are like beautiful objects that 
you know, if we were to launch a campaign to digitize everything, to thoroughly study it and put it into our systems, our collections base, that would take a really long time and a whole lot of money, which hopefully someday we'll be able to have. Mm -hmm. But rather than like sort of doing it one document at a time, we've been working on programs that engage curators to study the collections and then to digitize that work as they sort of you know, build playlists or make a work in response to something that they've heard. So I guess like themes that I've, themes that I know of within the archive, um, from what I know and what we've sort of been digging up recently are like, yeah, like radio art was a really particular time um, that I think, you know, is still present, but it, it's not, it was felt like it was definitely more at the surface at a different point when people were actually listening to the radio on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, Afrofuturism is a huge theme. There's a lot of Afrofuturist work that was coming from the sixties and seventies that's in our collection and, and on and beyond. Um, in the early 2000s, Malachi Richter was a, um, a, I guess, a documentarian who lived in Chicago and recorded bands. Like, he would go to the Empty Bottle and all of these different music venues just to record, like, set after set after set. He was, like, um, he was very disciplined and very diligent with his work. Um, so, we, you know, like, there's a lot of experimental bands from the early 2000s and, um a lot of sound poetry and i think it's such a wide such a wide range of different things like f feminist um sound poetry and yeah it's just a lot what what <laughs> so what is it the fact that it's not digitized is interesting to me because mm -hmm. you because when i think of like an audio archive i think of like you know like the smithsonian audio archive mm -hmm. where you can just kind of like you know the sound of a fire hydrant exploding and then you they're like you know 14 different tracks of a fire <laughs> hydrant going off but with with this like I, this might be a stupid question but like what are what physical forms do the undigitized recordings come in because like this the the history and the progression of recording technology has changed so much even in the last like 30 years and mm -hmm. like is there are there like reel-to-reel -reel recording oh yes oh that's so cool well that's really that's another <laughs> another thing that i kind of i'm really glad i like the <laughs> i so for a minute i was doing like i was a research assistant at the university of chicago um doing opera stuff and um, I was working on the, like a Rossini critical edition and that, and working with manuscripts and this, that, and the other. And that's a really interesting space in the digitization thing. Cause mm -hmm. it's, there's like a weird pushback sometimes with like, you know, very traditionalist art to do that. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, do you, is, do you find any of that? Or is it pretty much just like, everybody's like, yeah, no, get it digital. I don't know. I think that you know, because we sort of slowly digitize things as we exhume them, it's like opening a present every time. It's really a lovely experience. Um, I think that, like, I don't know, technology is a pushback isn't something that I've really experienced. I think that really the maybe the more like nerdy technical stuff that I don't really know that much about, mm -hmm. but um, I've, you know, 
heard about or something um, would be like, you know, how much mixing would you do after you digitize it? You know, like to be able to stay true to like the sort of aesthetics of the original recording while also making it um like do you take out the crackles and do you yeah or like you know some things can be really flat and so in order to like sort of hear things at a different experience that we might now with new technology you know like so what is the it's like photoshop right you know like what is the boundary of how much you alter this document um and i don't you know the the medium are typically so flat that it's not really (laughs) It's not really a lot you can do to like expand mm-hmm. that um the the spectrum of what you would hear, but yeah, I'm not good with this nerdy level of stuff. <laughs> no, that's well. I I do want to ask um like if someone were listening and were interested in learning more about how to get involved in that curation, mm-hmm. like how would they do that? Just send us an, e- an email. Pretty much, people oh, yeah. like send us proposals and send us emails, and if we can make it work, we'll make it work. Cool. But yeah, we sort of like, it's just really about like planning grants and like seeing what we can make capacity for because we were always, our plate is always very full. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is a sort of a problem we have to deal with <laughs> internally. Um, but yeah, I think people yeah. who are interested in the archive really, it's like, it's like a library. It's in service of the public. So any person who wanted to come and dig through what we have it would mean, you know, coming to the studio, taking interest in a particular artist, us pulling those documents, and then, you know, that person has the ability to look through them. Something that I find really interesting is your nonprofit status. Um, I think that it's, I think that, you know, many people would say like, oh, we're going to open a recording studio and we'll charge by the hour. And I keep going back to money, but it's a factor. Um, like, oh, well, and, and we'll, we'll be an LLC and it'll, it'll be great. But I'm so, I'm so interested in the fact that Experimental Sound Studio functions as, as a nonprofit. Like this, what do you, do you know what the factors were that went into that decision versus it being like a, like a business business? That is a great question. Uh, that would be one I would consult Lou on. Because, yeah, I don't know. We, we've evolved a lot over the years. And I don't know that, you know, the intention was to be a nonprofit from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that the intention of a nonprofit was there from the get-go. Right. Um, you know, it's nonprofits are and getting that status is always, like, a little complicated. But yes, um, it's... Being a nonprofit helps us to continue to support artists. You know, yeah. like we can get, we have we have a philanthropic base. We can gain a lot of grants. We're supported by a lot of wonderful foundations. So um, those opportunities wouldn't be available for us if we were working in a commercial capacity. Yeah. Um, it's you know like also every recording industry like all the you know like you're not not making a ton of money here you yeah. know like it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like a fool's game in that way you yeah. know <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. like most recording businesses are unless you're like a major recording company um 
you're just trying to like stay afloat and yeah. pay your rent. Mm-hmm. And the best part about being a nonprofit for us <laughs> is that we have other support to keep us going. Right. Um, but yeah, rec- the recording studio is a part of a monetized mechanism that allows us to keep our doors open and allows us to keep serving artists. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so do you have any, like, are there any, like, upcoming projects that, that the public can be aware about? Okay. I'm like, there are actually so many right now. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many. Um, yesterday we actually launched our, um, like, the first focused campaign to raise funding for our studio. Mm. Very cool. Um, so we're working to raise $26,000 by the end of 2019 so that we can um purchase an analog recording console so wow yeah it would this is sort of an interesting thing too because we're not um our studio has been run through like the generosity and giving of other people you know like a lot of the equipment that we've had we've sort of cobbled together over the years um which is amazing and i think we have incredibly wonderful you know like high quality recordings with everything we've done that we've been given but the idea of getting an analog recording console will really allow us to um expand the work that we're doing um and it's it's interesting because one would think like oh you're going all digital mixing board like that sort of thing um but i think that the aesthetic decision with buying this console is really just to sort of like keep that aesthetic range open. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cool. I'm like really bad with the technology stuff. No, too, so. it, that it, that's that's great. I, and I, that is actually a really good question. I mean, thing for the question I have, which I hope isn't best answered by. Anyway, let me just ask it. Um, I, I always find that kind of a thing interesting where, you know, we've done, we've done like tech fundraisers in the past. Like we did like a, an Indiegogo or whatever, um, for, for like, um, video equipment. But I, I think that's always really interesting of that game of like raising money for something. And it's, um, when it's something like that, like it's a clear tech item, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you have, so then you end up having that that thing of this is a thing that we need and and this is why we need it like how has like how have you found the best way to communicate like the yeah this is the actual question like how do you think about communication of of those kind of like base functional studio needs with like a community of people that, that are able to support in many ways. Like how, like how does an entity best communicate their needs to their community? Our goals and what we're working towards. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting challenge for us because we have such a wide range of people within our community, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, we, we know the nerdiest nerds, you know, like this sound, sound nerds are out there and we love them to death but you know like so presenting the information that we have to some spectrum of our audience is going to be like well what did you you know like really considered and kind of like you know 
think about <laughs> think a little more technically about what we're doing um and then the other spectrum is just you know like people just wanted to sound good yeah. so i feel like i'm not answering this question well you know you did <laughs> I, I i think it's really that idea of like needing to adapt is very mm-hmm. interesting and that's kind of not I, the reason why I'm asking it, and I'm sorry to put you on a sp- on the spot, is because I think it's hard to verbalize mm-hmm. that skill set, but it is also so important in this kind of work because it's this whole idea of of um, we've approached this in the past. It's like we're living in a time where the niche is becoming not so niche, you know, like like niche interests, and they can kind of overlap. Like more and more, you you see people that are like really in the comics or getting like art then quickly like jump over into board games and jump over into like video gaming and like jump into you know um i don't know like like experimental sound like i like these things you find more and more that the, that if if someone's interested in one niche interest they can they also tend to kind of like becomes an access point to other ones exactly and and i i think that that is a really interesting thing because you then have more and more entities that do such niche, like do such, um, I keep using the word niche, but what I really mean is just focused, like of one. Specialized. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Burnt out and tired. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting thing to, to have that lexicon of being able to talk to the specialist and also being able to talk to the layman. You know, that's, it's not, that's not easy. And I, I more and more want to, like, figure out how to verbalize, like, the best advice to do that, mm-hmm. you know? But right. I, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, because it's a tall order. Right. Like, to be able to satisfy the person who probably, you know, not probably, but who possibly knows better what you need than you do, you know, satisfy that population, but also satisfy the person who doesn't, who has no idea the mm-hmm. needs of a of an any given entity. Well, so like, let's go with this. Like, let's say you're in Walgreens, right? And someone and the, 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 the cashier is like, "I love Walgreens." Yeah. <laughs> like the cashier is like, "Oh, what do you do?" Like, and for some reason, you're like, "Okay, I guess I'm I'm dedicated to this conversation right now." You know, like what? How would you how would you describe it? The 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 project or the fundraiser or just either whatever you can pick. Whatever I would respond to with him. Yeah, like, like, if he was like, what do you do for a living? That's always fun. So this is, like, I have two part-time jobs, and this ESS is my favorite part-time job. No offense, mm-hmm. Hyde Park Art Center. Um, <laughs> but I, um, I often have to answer this question for my other job. You know, like, what do you do? What is your other job? So I feel like it's... It's always like a dance of explaining what sound art is and like what we mean by experimental sound. Um, But I guess to the Walgreens guy, I would probably say I work for an arts nonprofit and then move on with my day. Mm -hmm. But or I would be very generous with my time. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say I work for Experimental Sound Studio. We're a sound based nonprofit supporting artists. I don't know. Like, I feel like I should have like a better... Like a funny. I certainly thrill. don't. I'm not saying this to say that you should. I think that a lot <laughs> of people don't. Joke. I think yeah. that a lot. Like I don't. Like I. Like I. I don't know. Like when. 
you know, like I, my, my, <laughs> if my grandma asks me like, what do you want to do with your career? No, what? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't even know how to begin to describe to you like what I think the world is going to be like in 20 years and what I hope to be a part of, you know? And yeah. I, I think that that's such a, it's a weird, I don't know if that's a, a thing of the time that we're living in or just that it, if it's a thing of being in a, like be, being a specialist in something at all. Like I, I, I but I do, I find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, to the layman, it's like, whoa, what is that? You know, like, mm-hmm. what are you doing with experimental sound? And there's always this perception that it's like, that it is solely like a music based endeavor. And then when I have to explain, you know, like, we also have hydrophones for when people want to scream into a bowl of water, Mm -hmm. you know, like it just sort of, there's a level with which when you're giving information about what's, what some of the extremities and eccentricities within art artistic practices, like what, what that means for people it's always like okay it's like talking about performance art or right, something yeah. to yeah. some degree <laughs> but then sometimes you'll say something and you'll be like and then they'll latch onto that one thing and then all of a sudden it becomes a jumping point front to other things that are right. that are in this experimental and that i think and obviously so many people create things because they want to share it you mm-hmm. know so you do have that thing where because I, I that's why i always hate when people are like elitists because when they're like, oh, just the layman's not going to get it. It doesn't matter. It's like, no, th- of course not. Like, that's, it's important to, like, that bridge is super important, but that doesn't mm-hmm. diminish the specialty, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, know. for sure. It's a weird, it's a weird conversation to have because I feel like I'm mostly gauging whether or not the person's actually listening mm-hmm. or following yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or if they, like, what, what of the diction that I'm using can they understand and hold on to? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. it's not like saying, like, I record rock music, you know, or I work for an organization that, you know, it's way more, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. Not complicated. And that sounds really negative, but well, like. Well, it's, it's more specialized. Right. Like. And diverse, like diverse, like, and. Well, and it's, what, what yeah. it is, is that it. It, it it functions specifically to fit the needs of a community. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't, like, you know, when you're looking at the schedule, the recording schedule month to month, it's like, I'm sure it's like, oh, today we're doing this, but tomorrow we're doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, that's, that is, that's something that we can relate very heavily to. It's like, we, we exist to reflect what is happening in our community and, you exist to record what is happening in the community, whether mm-hmm. that be screaming into a bowl of water or recording a band or, you know, having Dadaist radio shows. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's all... Um, but kind of speaking of, like, reflecting back into the community, like, what role has Chicago played in the development of Experimental Sound Studio? Because there's always, there's always kind of, like, that dance that people do of, like... Oh, like I have this thing, I have this idea, I should probably bring it to the coast. Mm. Mm. But y'all have been in Chicago for 33 years. Right, yeah. Like what kind of like what like how has that helped you grow Chicago? Well, I think Chicago is actually an incredibly like fertile and experimental landscape for 
artists in general. I mean, I would say that now and I would say that tomorrow, but definitely, you know, definitely since the beginning of ESS and and before then, man, I'm not articulating this well. Chicago is a really like excellent landscape for experimental music. Mm -hmm. It has been for a long time. I think, you know, um, we've, we've fostered a lot of pioneers of music particularly musicians from the Association of American Creative Music. Um, Man, it's such a big thing to even begin to unpack because I think Chicago is really unique in that, um, you know, we're really assembled of hybrid forms. We have this great advantage of living in a community that... um, people have a reasonable like lifestyle there's there's a reasonable like means of living our rent isn't crazy high mm-hmm. you know like we sort of have a um a good quality of life here despite living in a i mean that's that sounds really simplified it's a very complicated city but as far as like artistic creation and artistic right development like there's a lot of support for artists here there's a lot of academia there's a lot of experimentation um and a lot of hybrid forms come out of that and i think people mostly recognize that within like the music world and the music industry you know like we've put out some incredible artists i don't know what you guys listen to but I'm sort of like reaching for references that maybe. Well, I mean, like the classic is like Chance the Rapper, right? Yeah. Like, and and I, but it's interesting, right? Well, I mean, and Chance the Rapper is not an example of this. Like a lot of artists make that first album or first two albums and then leave, and and it's an interesting thing to be, because it is, or like you know, even more colloquially, like the whole idea of Second City feeding into um, SNL. Yeah. You know, like it's it's such a weird thing, but to be a fixture and to be to stay in Chicago and to be that archival space, it's like so it's so needed and almost like more so than in other cities. Mm-hmm. the The level I always love that I always think of with this with this thought is like, how would it be different if it were in New York or in LA? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in the arts for for six years um, in a various and a lot of different capacities. And I think one thing that I've observed in artist communities here is that, you know, there's a lot of support for developing work here. Um, there's a lot of support for building a career here. Um, but I think what Chicago really lacks is being able to hold on to their artists, you know, like bigger opportunities, more money, more security is offered in different places. And I mean, you can recognize this through like the academics at the Art Institute that kind of get cherry picked out of, you know, like these big names of people that Colleen Smith, you know, like this, these are like my art, (laughs) my like visual art examples, but, um, you know, we have a lot of people that get cherry picked from where we are just because they've had that ability to develop their work here. So like the promise of moving somewhere else and getting more money, that's one thing that I've noticed. I mean, aside from the music and sound industry, 
it just seems like artists in Chicago I lost my I lost my I lost my path there. Yeah. That's okay. Sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of dawdled on and forgot what I, my point was. No, I I think though like the thought of what it means to be an artist in Chicago is I mean it's just kind of hard to to like put into perspective of because it's completely different than any other place. I mean, that's the that's why we keep asking this question is because I feel we're, like you could ask... We're just trying to figure it out. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like you could ask 100 people what it means to be an artist in Chicago and they'll, they'll all have different answers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, even cause, because it is so comp Like, yeah, like, it is possible to... Like, affordability of, if, of housing, even. Like, of course, it's more affordable than New York, but, like, it is still rent to pay, you know? Like... People, a lot of people in Chicago still have day jobs. Some people are able to not have that, but it's just a, it is such a spectrum of, of all of it. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say what, you know, like the industry can push people in different directions, both good and bad, you know, like publicity can make someone make boring, repetitive work and put them into a safe place where they aren't challenged and i think because (laughs) and it's to a certain degree because chicago sort of like lacks that deep level of financial support for communities like you know which is why we're different from new york and la because those are like hyper capitalist cities not Mm -hmm. that we aren't you know like Mm -hmm. but there's just such a flood of money and opportunities coming from those places that that's part of the reason why they're like a big sort of like centers for culture so i think like to some degree like if chicago had that sort of financial stability to like provide artists the opportunity to not you know work seven adjunct jobs Mm -hmm. or to not you know like work at three bars you know or whatever it means to like make rent and make your practice happen um I guess the thing that I noticed, though, is, like, if you move to either coast, you're really being influenced by those communities and by where that money comes from. Yeah. But... Yeah, it is... It's so much easier to kind of, like, stick to your guns in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To to not necessarily, you know, be influenced. Well, Mm -hmm. because, like, what's there to lose, you know? Right. I mean, like, in terms of, like, if you have you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so backing your exhibition in New York City, like, if you do something that pisses off Mr. So-and-so, like, you have a lot to lose. You could, Mm -hmm. you know, your funding could be pulled. But, like, if you just through, like, grit and piss and vinegar figure out your own shit and piss off the Chicago version of Mr. So-and-so, who cares? It's Mm -hmm. your funding. It's your thing. Like, Mm -hmm. there's less to... Like there's less to lose in taking yeah. chances when mm-hmm. it's when there's no you can find institution a temp job behind and pay it. your rent. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, I mean, obviously it's not ideal, but you can figure something out. Right. Yeah, I know Chicago personally as a place where people, um, it's very DIY. People, mm-hmm. if they want to see something happen in the world, they can actualize it. You know, like there's a lot of like energy behind like making new opportunities creating new spaces and like we have the affordability um and the creative culture to make some you know like alternative spaces for culture to flourish yeah um which 
you know, is pretty, like, typical in smaller cities, you know, like Baltimore and, like, Kansas City and, like, all of these sort of smaller communities that, um, where people have, like, the means to live on a, in a, in a decent quality of life mm -hmm. that we can continue to collaborate with people. There's room to sort of, like, pick up your hammer and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a few minutes left. So the last thing we love to do with all of our guests is a one-minute plug for anything we have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like letting folks know where they can learn more about upcoming events at a given sound studio, if that were a thing. <laughs> um, otherwise, we love hearing shout-outs to other folks that are doing dope work or any media that you're consuming personally, um, self-care otherwise, music, movies, TV shows, things like that. Wow. Um, so the big plugs that I wish I had mentioned earlier is that we have our annual gala. It's coming up on August 16th at Constellation Chicago. Cool. Um, we're honoring George Lewis. Um, and we have a fantastic bill of about a dozen artists, including two sound installations. Um, so it's a really fantastic evening. All of the funds that we that we collect or, or generate through the gala will help launch our um, our studio campaign, our studio upgrade campaign. So this is sort of like a pivotal fundraising event mm. for us, um, like our largest fundraising, fundraising event of the year. Um, but we also have a show coming up at the, um, at the Green Mill. Uh, so we're presenting a concert by, um, or a project by Rob Mazurik, um, it's called Desert and Crips Volume 1, an um, album he's produced with Chad Taylor, Ingrid uh, Hawker Flotten, um, Chris Davis, and um, Rob Mazurik. So it's their album release party, and that will be at the Green Mill. It's cool. in support of our program called Option. It's a weekly concert that's curated um, by some really lovely guest curators that's focused on improvised music. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Um, well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our podcast episodes and articles there. You can also find us on social media on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group that we love and adore called Sounding Board, where we talk about local arts, local politics, and astrology memes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag, spelled the same way as the website, S-C-A-P-I-M-A-G. And you can find the podcast, the one you're listening to, right now in most podcast places including google play itunes podcasts and radio public and spotify and i'm here as always to talk about the importance of subscribing if you head to our website scopymag.com and go to our subscribe page there are a couple ways that you can do that the first is to sign up for email blasts the uh <laughs> The, uh, even though we post our content across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The second thing you can do is become a member for as little as $2 a month. You can help us keep our lights on and pay our artists. If you're in a position to do so, please consider it. It helps a lot. Um, also, we have merch for sale. If you head to scopymag.com store, you can buy a moody beach towel which yeah. is 
a thing. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty good. <gasps> I ordered one. You I t- forgot that I ordered one. It's yeah. going to come soon. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, also, if you're a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and want to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So give a little, give a lot. And if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep.